This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this week's episode, we're joined by David Craig, who is a clinical associate professor at USC out in California. And he's the co-author of the upcoming book, Social Media Entertainment, the new industry at the intersection of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. David, welcome to Media Business Matters. Really honored to be here. Thank you both. Well, David has been giving talks on campus all day today, but I'm going to ask him to repeat many of the things he's already said uh, for our listening audience. I'm particularly excited to have David here because there is a huge absence in many of our podcasts, which has to do with the realm of ad-supported internet-distributed video. I haven't been looking at it at all because I know there's such great work being done by David and his writing partner, Stuart Cunningham. And so, David, you have and Stuart have coined this term, this concept of social media entertainment. What is it? How do you describe it? So uh, it's very hard to describe three years of research in a pithy way, but um, the, the best way to, to explain it is we've come to understand this as a site in which uh, former users, now turned professionals, creators, we call them influencers, YouTubers, micro-celebrities, which are people who've managed to harness multiple platforms to engage in new forms of content production that ends up aggregating global fan communities that can be converted into many forms of revenue. But they also are generating culture at the same time. So we've occupied a a very uh, interesting position around realizing that if you look at this through the lens of these creators, um, then uh, you see a whole raft of new forms of practices, new forms of labor, new forms of media management, new forms of content innovation, production, pedagogy, and cultural diplomacy and activism all occurring from that point of view, which is exciting. So at the most basic level, you're talking about content creators for YouTube. Can you list off some of all the other platforms and, sure. and maybe some examples that listeners might be familiar with? Absolutely. It's a, it's a very competitive platform landscape, which we don't often realize, is that when you see it from the creator standpoint, they are operating across YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Musical.ly, Live.me, YouNow, a whole raft of new live streaming app platforms that have all just emerged, probably three today even. <laughs> um, and that doesn't include the other platforms that don't exist here in the U.S. that are, are out there in, the, in other markets, including most notably China, which has its own separate array of platforms. China alone has had up to 300 live broadcasting apps in wow. their landscape, their platform landscape alone. So across these platforms, we have numerous, uh, some quite notorious creators that have already gained not only fame, but infamy. Um, So we have, of course, the bad boys of YouTube, Logan Paul and Luke Paul and uh, Jake Paul and... uh, and uh, also DIY makeup beauty vloggers, the raft of Instagram beauty vloggers, but also really extraordinary entrepreneurs like Michelle Fon, um, who've grown giant businesses out of this understanding that these platforms do something quite different. We also have what we call the thought leaders in this space, people like Hank and John Green, who are better known as the Vlog Brothers, but also have empowered and framed and engaged and helped harness what is this huge community call themselves nerd fighters who are very active around not only using platforms to monetize their community but also to do culture 
So it's uh, it's uh, that's just a short list. I could go on for hours uh, <laughs> listing what are the now dozens of categories and verticals of content and creators in those spaces. Now that we're kind of on the topic of influencers, let's kind of follow a money trail here, sure. kind of starting with um, how you, a brand might reach out to an influencer, or how maybe an influencer would reach out to the brand, kind of where the money goes, and how maybe the platforms benefit from this as well. Sure. So I'm going to reverse engineer that, because sure. I'm going to start from the creator side. Sure. So a creator, uh, for example, will have um, built a large enough community on YouTube to the point where they are now able to qualify for a YouTube partnership, which means YouTube will provide them a portion of their programmatic advertising, meaning every time they run an ad on there, the creator will get 65 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. But that turns out to be, in the grand scheme of things, a very small amount of money for what these creators are now doing. The biggest play is, once they've aggregated enough of an interested participatory fan community, brands start reaching out to them in more numbers than we've been able to even really calculate. So even at 10,000 subscribers or 100,000 views on one platform, they're already turning away offers from brands who are coming at them saying, will you talk about, will you mention, will you use, will you use it on YouTube, will you use it on your Instagram, Twitter, and Snap feeds? This influencer marketing uh, business is actually the most lucrative way to generate the revenue for these creators. And the truth is, is the brands are reaching out to them, and they're reaching out to them directly. Um, they're often circumventing any kind of management. Their ad agencies don't even know they exist half the time. So it really is uh, a very organic kind of process and one that has cut out a lot of the old madmen mm -hmm. routine. They're no longer uh, going through those traditional routes. And the so what you're getting at here is the brands are kind of reaching out. It's not the ad agencies reaching out to the YouTubers and quote unquote influencers. It's the brands themselves being like, hey, this person is popular and fits what we want. So it's a little bit of all of those, okay. um, but it's rarely the case that the influencers themselves reach out. They're just fielding mm -hmm. offers, and they're fielding offers at, at, at a rate that we haven't been able to calculate, mm -hmm. but it's very disruptive. And it really comes down to simply this. Would you be willing to sit through a 30-second commercial, which we've had in traditional broadcasting for the last 70 years and has been the fundamental way in which advertising-driven content has been funded? Or would you rather listen to someone who you've been hanging out with online along with their other 10 million fans for the last eight years who says, oh, you know what? I found this hairdryer that works better than any other. You guys might want to know about it. By the way, they paid me to, to tell you about it, but I love it. This is legit. This is someone who it takes word of mouth now, but runs it through the paradigm of you've had a relationship with this person. That level of influence literally is almost hard to f calculate next to the ads that we now routinely skip over in DVR play and on online viewing. Yeah, even YouTube, like right. nine times out of ten, there's a little skip ad button. Skip ad, you're not even paying attention to those four seconds. You've already missed most of what they're talking about. But by the way, those are only two revenue streams. As we discussed earlier today, I'm supposed to pretend I didn't, but um, <laughs> uh, I laid out another dozen business models that they're engaging in. Everything from virtual goods, e-commerce, sponsored content, subscription content, crowdfunding, real world uh, you know, performance fees, um, uh, and traditional 
media uh, revenue, so they get paid to be on reality shows. But more often than not, that ends up being one of the smaller categories of revenue that they generate. It's actually not a very lucrative thing to go slum over in traditional media. They don't make nearly as much as they do from the brand deals or from direct pay from their fan communities sponsoring them. So your research is based on nearly 200 interviews now, and yeah. mostly with these YouTubers talking about how they develop their their strategies. Have any of them talked about the the time before the 10,000 views, or how did they emerge out of the hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands, of new posters every day? Well, so yeah, our, our interviews actually covered a whole swath of many different categories of, of professionals in this space, including platform executives and, and multi-channel network executives, as well as creators. Um, but... Uh, we're really quite tired. I want to lay down a little bit. <laughs> um, that's a line from Aaron Brockovich. Anyway, um, the uh, the the speed with which this industry has evolved is so startling when you look at the fact that we're now describing the third generation of creators. The first generation of creators were more often than not hobbyists, people who came onto these platforms to use them the same way we all did, to communicate, to interact, to store home movies. And over the course of a very quick period of time, they started to not only know how to use these platforms to express themselves and to create the kind of content that they cared about and talk about their own interests and values and identities and ideologies, but they found a, a, an audience, a community that was equally interested in these things, in many cases because they were underrepresented in traditional legacy media. So you saw Asian Americans and LGBTQ teenagers and people from marginalized communities really gravitating to this space. So that was the first generation, and they really did emerge out of YouTube, which was the first to enter into these partnership agreements and monetize and say, hey, your expression, your content, your community has value to us, and we are willing to pay you for it. Um, the second generation emerged as the new platforms that particularly in the mobile app space came around. So the Vine, Instagram, Snapchat era, but also concurred with now Twitter and Facebook integrating video and photo content and now starting to offer partnership plans. These were, for lack of a better word, you know, roughly a five-year difference, and they have now featured a, a second wave of creators who come in already knowing that this is a business because they spent five years watching their favorite creators from the first generation make money. And they're saying, oh, this is a viable career option. And we now have anecdotal surveys going on around the world that are suggesting that if for people in that age range, so as roughly as young as 10, they now see YouTube as as viable a career path as being a fireman. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. And now we're entering into the third generation of YouTubers or creators. I don't know why I'm using that term. <laughs> and these are the ones who are growing up now in the live streaming space. They're the ones who are understanding that live streaming actually introduces a whole new set of practices, a whole new form of content innovation, and a whole new array of viable monetization proper, uh, practices. So the e-commerce and the virtual goods mm -hmm. side of live streaming now um, over on platforms like Twitch and you now and Live.me um, are proving to be, in some instances, even more lucrative than the video-on-demand platforms that we had seen prior. So 12 years of a brand new industry that's only been defined as such, we're in the third iteration of this creator movement, if you will.
Yeah, that does kind of seem to grow with kind of the arc of technology. I mean, it seems like new technologies are coming out every few years instead of like, you know, a decade, two decades or There'll something. There'll be AR, VR mm-hmm. creators coming down the pike, we oh, suspect, yeah. as holographic creators for all we know. I <laughs> yeah, mean, it's I hard mean, to anticipate. If VR ever kind of gets over that hump, there will absolutely be creators for it. But I want to get into, um, you talked about how live streaming was even more lucrative than prior. Let, let's get into a little bit more specifics about how. So one of the more surprising uh, pieces of data is that live streaming actually came around before uh, video on demand platforms did in the form of a platform called Justin.tv and also across numerous websites in the 90s that have written been written about by other scholars in a book called Cam Girls by Teresa Simp. And live streaming actually, to be perfectly frank, emerged even more prominently in the other industry we don't talk about. Um, the porn industry, where it's a hugely viable and very lucrative space. So if you see this as, if you will, the beta testing for uh, <laughs> more mainstream, industry. <laughs> almost every, right? Home video all came, you know, as goes porn, goes so goes mainstream media, right? <laughs> so let's look at Justin TV as paradigmatically of the way this live streaming business has emerged. Justin TV strived to actually be a live broadcasting online model. And it didn't succeed. But then when it pivoted to this other new space of what's called Let's Play or Gameplay, it exploded. What it turns out is that who are the communities most likely to gravitate to these DIY live gameplay tutorial commentary sites? The people who are already super tech savvy engaging in interactive video and interactive Mm -hmm. gameplay already. So they were preordained in this way to co-gravitate. The let's play gameplay category in which there are not only vast differences between the types of games that are being played, but also the types of ways gameplay exists. There's subgenres of that already. Um, you see this huge live streaming really take off and really explode. And that's when Justin TV rebranded itself as a, as a platform called Twitch. And then, recognizing what was its extraordinary potential, Twitch got bought by Amazon for a billion dollars. It's hard to recognize what Twitch contributes to Amazon's economy until you see how live streaming has played out in China, where live streaming has been, and the, the, what they call the Wang Hong showroom live streamers of China, have been absolutely key in driving the e-commerce across uh, China's new growing consumer-based economy. Amazon is actually trailing Alibaba and their live streaming platforms, which have helped drive e-commerce. It's a cheaper, more efficient form of advertising that cuts out a whole raft of the advertising supply chain and cuts straight to the chase. You like what I'm wearing? Here's the link, and it's connected to the site because it's on an e-commerce site and owned by an e-commerce company. So Amazon is very rapidly uh, diversifying Twitch to create and recreate the conditions that Chinese live streamers have been able to do to drive e-commerce. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting time to see this, these, these models try to play out in different cultures and economies. Yeah, it, the point about how brief the history is, how much it's changed, and you know the, the difficulty of sort of pinning it down in any moment as it continues to change. One of the things I found really interesting about your writing and, and your talk today 
had to do with the distinction that you're drawing between digital and social. Can you sort of talk more about that and really how the way in which we already have distinctive generations? And I think that's a really helpful way of understanding how things are changing. Right. So um, if you look at a lot of discourse around disruption in media, we often use digital and social interchangeably as if these were actually the same sort of thing. And they couldn't be, from our vantage point, more different. In fact, I almost want to make the argument that social is to digital as digital was to analog in its distinctiveness. So digital pretty much is almost a redundant term, really, because all media now is digital. Um, and even then, uh, you lose a lot of the distinctions mm-hmm. between the way all the platforms are different. So you can't describe you know, Amazon and compare it to Google. When we talk about social media, we talk about something quite radically different in the history of human communication, networked communication that has allowed us to now speak one-to-many and to do so in networked ways that allow us to intersect across many different communities of affinity, networked publics, we often refer to them as. The, the formations of society have been re, uh, redesigned and, and, and reorganized. We've reorganized societies by the affinities and interests that these platforms allow us to do through networked communication. That's quite distinct from a new content industry that's creating new forms of intellectual property that can be monetized and turned into plush toys and theme park rides. I'm not diminishing <laughs> legacy media. For, for goodness sakes, I've built two careers off of it. <laughs> uh, but it is really vital that we get our heads around the fact that even within the social sphere, some scholars don't even think of YouTube as social media because it's been so so closely aligned with a, as a video content provider as a media distribution value system. Um, lost in this is the fact that the reason YouTube bought it or Google bought it is because it was a, a search engine. Yeah. Um, and I think even back um, when we've talked about YouTube on our show, it's been in the context of mainly YouTube Red. Yeah. and other things like that. So this is definitely a different context from how we're used to looking at it on the pod. What's interesting, again, from a creator-centric point of view, is um, even when we re- refer to them as social media creators, no two social media are alike. They fully understand, we see this in, 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 uh, in the book Spreadable Media, that uh, all of these platforms serve a different value proposition and uh, require a different set of skill sets, different forms of content innovation, different forms of virality. Um, so these creators who can all emerge off of each platform, you, you have creators coming up off of Snap who then are crossing over into YouTube. You've got all of the Viners had to go somewhere once they shut it down. We're in the post-Vine era, although Vine may come back. Um, they all emerged on one platform, but they are fundamentally multi-platform, but recognize almost intuitively that these platforms all do something very different and it's to their advantage in terms of growing their brand that they recognize and take advantage of those distinctions. So we, we talk about linear media here. Let, let's get into um, a little bit of a transition and kind of ask what can linear learn from these kinds of industries that have divulged around social media? Well, we, we know this throughout history, that whenever a new media industry comes along, the old media industry ends up having to reorganize and better understand what its value is. We know this from you know television coming in and disrupting film, cable interrupting television, and on and on. Um, so we're seeing uh, legacy media have to respond to, react, reorganize, and better understand what its value is really more deeply think about what do we mean when we say we do, we're an entertainment industry and what that actually constitutes. 
More specifically, I can offer up two examples of a way in which these are co-evolving systems that are continuous and discontinuous at the same time. One is the way in which we call the transflow of industry logics between TV and social media entertainment as witnessed by talk show hosts building and crafting their format pieces within the show. So you've got the carpool karaoke, you've got Ellen DeGeneres specifically orchestrating and and creating segments inside the, the show that will go viral on her platforms online, which she then turns around to her advertisers and and says, we're selling you the aggregate of both worlds. And so it's a reverse engineering of the way these talk shows have organized. And in many ways, that's the greatest continuity we see between the practice of vlogging, which is breaking the fourth wall, and talk show hosts talking directly into camera. Um, where they, again, create this illusion of intimacy in a relationship, and it's as if they are talking to you, not necessarily their studio audience. Mm -hmm. So you see continuities there, and that's why they've been the easiest to harness these platforms. The flip side of this, and where we've seen epic fails around legacy media trying to get into the space, has been not understanding the role of the creators. They all invested in what were these organizations called multi-channel networks. These were these artificially created startups that understood that YouTube was offering off millions of dollars in their channel development strategy in 2011 and 2012. They wanted in on it. They understood that if they could make deals with creators and help grow their channels, they'd get channels through YouTube, and it became this kind of artificial economy. Within a span of a couple of years, these companies like Maker Studios, Awesomeness TV, Style Hall, Full Screen, were claiming to have fifty to 60,000 creators that they represented and were helping manage and build their brands. Wasn't Maker bought by Disney? And so, exactly. Know? They've all been purchased by legacy media companies, and they've all pretty much lost mm-hmm. all the value. So, Disney bought Maker Studios for an estimate of $867 million. And um, it's now been um, gone from 60 to 70,000 creators to less than 1,000 creators. And it's been reorganized under two different divisions of Disney to the extent that it almost doesn't exist even as a brand anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's 2015. They spent a billion dollars for a company that now no longer exists. There you have a poorly understood value proposition of they thought they were buying these creators and more importantly these creators communities nope there were no exclusive deals by the way the 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 owners the people who created maker studios the minute they sold the company they cashed out (laughs) they're like oh well we know where this is going they bought a ski lodge in in Utah, literally. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a, it's a fascinating example of how we're talking about separate value propositions. Disney thought they were getting teens from twelve to eighteen, which they've strived for years to get mm-hmm. because they've always lost that that demo in their brand. Probably and the younger end of that is Disney Channel demo, and the older end of that is Marvel not even and Star really, Wars. Yeah. yeah. They, they thought they were buying IP and, and uh, content and a community, and they all they got was management teams that left as soon as they got sold. So. <laughs> well, I think one of the, the curiosities that I've had in, in my own work has been the question of how new technologies, new platforms, new business models have enabled shifts in storytelling. One of the things that's really interesting to me is this notion of 
vlogging as a kind of storytelling that I can't I can't come up with an equivalent. It's 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 really brought into the video realm a level of personalized address. And it sounds from your for from your research on what really makes these work has to do with the community that these creators are able to develop. And and so there's this way in which it, it almost feels like traditional media, but yet we need entirely new frameworks, ways of thinking about it, because what is happening there, the the motivation behind being part of a community is entirely different from being a viewer. And, it, and you certainly have the evidence of the creator practices being very different as well in terms of the things that they prioritize. And so I guess that was a whole big introduction without a, co- a question, <laughs> but can you talk around that in some, some smart way? Oh, I'll try to sound smart. I'm pretty good at bluffing. Um, yeah, you're, no, you're absolutely right. We need a paradigm shift, Media Studies 2.0 even, to really rethink some of the frameworks in which we've gone about describing these things because we tried. We fought and fought in our research. I mean, this was literally you know, 10 interviews into this project, and we basically said, well, give up on our thesis, which was a ridiculous one I'm too embarrassed to repeat, <laughs> and literally said, let's wipe our memories of the frameworks and our knowledge and stop trying to pull out continuities and, and analogies that say, oh, that's how this is in traditional media. Let's listen. Let's just listen. So we did probably 40 interviews before we started to even see patterns emerging Once we got to around 60 interviews, we started to see certain continuities that we could and analogies and and distinctions. Now, as I mentioned, we're at 170 plus interviews um, and we feel like, ironically, we're at the place where we're thinking, oh, we've just scratched the surface. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of opportunity here. It's a great time to be a media scholar. I got to say, it's a really fan. It's like watching cars get built for the first time and understanding, oh, this is going to change how society organizes itself. It is very much a social media revolution that we're witnessing. And we see this particularly with the work that the Parkland students mm-hmm. have done. Yes. Um, there's uh, a little blurbs every now and then. Of course, journalists don't necessarily know to ever inquire or ask, who are your role models mm-hmm. in media? But we've seen a few instances where they go, oh, it's it's Philip DeFranco, it's Casey Neistat. Well, for most of our your audience, they probably are like, I've never heard of them. But for these kids, these are people they've been watching every afternoon because they post content almost daily who have 10 to 15 million viewers and fan community members who talk about civics and politics and current events, but also flying in airplanes and buying cars and new technology. So... Um, these are the these are the platform intellectuals. They're not just popular intellectuals or public intellectuals, but platform intellectuals that are inspiring. The Gen, Gen C is the term we've heard to describe this generation connected. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, we kind of I love the term because it's a provocation in its own right that basically says the headlines you're reading about the Parkland teens they're the best generation at communicating we've ever witnessed, or they know social media better than you ever will. Or my phrase that I've been using is they they understand that the cell phone is mightier than the gun. And they've understood how to harness and use these platforms for this movement. And they've been inspired by these creators that we've been studying for a while now. And we've anticipated this is going to happen. It's exciting mm-hmm. to see. Let's hope that this spreads mm-hmm. in every conceivable way. So, yeah, back to your question, though, also around... Um, how do we even compare the kind of content innovation 
we've wrestled with whether vlogging is a format or a genre. We keep going back and forth. Um, what would be the difference between the two? This is where I prove myself to be the industry guy and not the communications guy because I understand genre through an industry lens. It doesn't have the aesthetics of, of a Western or a fantasy, um, but if you come from communication studies, genre has a completely different kind of connotation. So uh, all I know is, is that we've adopted the term verticals. That turns out to mm. be very much about the content within the frame. And for us, the vlogging is... It's not a. It's it's a rhetorical device. It's a way to foster the illusion of intimacy. What we found very reaffirming around our position that this was a content isn't even the right word. We call it content because it's communicative. <laughs> we're very cloying in that way. Um, <laughs> but these were discursive models of discussion of conversation mm-hmm. that was happening, and we see this now more palpably with live streaming. What do you call that? What is live streaming? Is it vlogging? Is it talking interactively? Because it's a form of telepresence. These are, we've used these terms for a number of years, but it's also a simultaneity because you have instantaneous interactivity with your community. They can comment. They can send goods, virtual goods. They can post emoticons, you know, so you have that. Is it just a new form of broadcasting, like radio, TV, or is it something completely different? But broadcasting was, uh, well, once broadcasting became professionalized and after FTC and FCC came along and took it out of the hands of civilians who were running their own stations okay. from their basements, it became formats. It okay. became scripted. It became much more structured and more formalized. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a palpable resistance to the formalization of content in this space. They don't, they don't want to be TV. The, one, of the best, one of the quotes we got was, oh, uh, TV are just characters with a script. We're real. The higher the production value and the more constructed the content is, the more they start to approximate something that the, their community isn't interested in. Their community wants to hang out, spend time together. And that's a very different value proposition from how a lot of us have practiced media, to borrow from Nick Coldry. Our practices from our generation was this was a chance to escape, to go into other narratives, to kind of go off and learn things. It wasn't necessarily about a relationship. I mean, yes, we do have a relationship to the technology, but I wasn't hanging out with my favorite actors <laughs> in TV or film online or through my TV set, the way um, that these... Don't you kind of... I mean, I know I kind of think of my favorite shows as hanging out with the characters. You know, you kind of get to know characters over time. So, like, the Villanueva family from Jane the Virgin, I get an hour with them every week. Right. Yeah, yeah I think it, it is a different phenomenon. It is It is a different phenomenon. That's just... But a, but a better analogy, though. Yeah. But you're absolutely it's right, though. A better is soap opera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we have now, now reams of really revel- mm-hmm. fantastic scholarship around... Hip operas. In fact, my first mentor was Robert C. Allen, um, that understood. Hang on a second. The relationship between women during the day watching soap operas and then later primetime soaps is a very different dynamic than what we've typically understood between the content and the viewer. Um, I love the phrase I used to hear. I'm going to go watch my stories. Um, that's <laughs> my, my southern thing, that. right? Those yeah. are my stories because I'm a member of that community. It doesn't matter that they don't actually talk with me. They talk to me. It's probably not much different than how we all relate to each other in families. <laughs> we can talk to more than with. 
we think it's important to recognize these as a difference in relationships. Again, Nancy Bame's been mm-hmm. doing some really interesting work around this notion of relational labor. Another scholar in this space we really uh, really think is doing great work is Crystal Abaddon, who talks about visibility labor. The labor is sometimes a little problematic as a framing device. We're all trying to kind of figure this out mm-hmm. and say, hang on, this is something new. Well, or it's it's it requires pulling together different things, and so there's probably aspects of that that canon of of media studies, and and maybe you know as you know, not necessarily where you might think immediately, but soap operas, but also the need to engage in a conversation with the the interpersonal scholars, the people who've been studying that kind of communication, and, and normally you know we may all be in the same organizations, but we never talk to each other, right? And I think some of the early mobile communication research was sort of in that same vein of coming new technologies, what are we doing with them, and realizing, you know, we're just using them to have the same kind of interactions that we've always had, but they're, they're mediated differently. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, it's, it's really, I think, finally a chance to get past what have been a lot of deep-seated divisions and rifts within the field of communications. You know, we've had people who came from the humanities, from the social science, from sociology, from, from other forms of, uh, of epistemologies and knowledge backgrounds. And we've often had this kind of collegiality, but we really didn't have a clue or didn't find any way in which one side of communication spoke to the other side. Well, guess what? In this space, this is a chance Mm -hmm. for real field convergence. We all need to understand and take your classes in media industry studies, but we also need to take studies in rhetoric, discourse analysis. By the way, we can't do this without the work of our colleagues coming up out of the tech side who are better understanding digital ethnography and data analytics and particularly the critical tech platform people who are basically calling out and saying, hey, guys, we've been screaming this for a while now. There's some real serious issues that need to be addressed here that um, we've known about. We've just not been able to get anyone to pay attention to, but we, we certainly are now. And now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. David Craig, what are you watching? Uh, Nothing now that March Madness is over, uh, (laughs) because that's literally my biggest favorite viewing time of the year. So uh, other than that, a a diet of reality shows and political satire. Yeah, it was a great year for the Michigan Wolverines in March Madness. Yeah, Yeah, go blue. And now Amanda and I are kind of walked in and we're like, we're watching the same thing here. So, Amanda, we're watching Roseanne. Yeah, although I haven't actually seen the third episode, so I've seen two. That's probably the my least favorite of the three. Are you good to know? Yeah. And a small tempest in the teapot, at least, for this first week of its existence, although already guaranteed for a second season, so it'll be with us for a while. I mean, it had it just a huge debut number, absolutely huge. Right, and then, you know, some of the headlines, like, broadcasting's back, I think, mean, no. Well, broadcasting never went away. That's true, too. I mean, every, I feel like every time there's an Empire or a This Is Us or a Roseanne, I just keep hearing, broadcasting's back, and I'm thinking, well, where did it go? But... It's time for a little bit of an angry Alex right here, because some of the headlines around the Roseanne revival have revolved around this being the new portrayal of a working class family. And I'm thinking to myself, how many sitcoms can I name off the top of my head that deal with being working class? Or how many TV shows can I name off the top of my head dealing with working class? Heck, on ABC itself, there's the middle. They're speechless. They're fresh off the boat. 
I mean, then you expand to Netflix with One Day at a Time or The CW with Jane the Virgin. What Roseanne is doing with a working class family isn't new. Now, I think we are seeing in many cases some not great frames for the the coverage. Um, The best piece that I've seen, I think, is the piece that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did in The Hollywood Reporter, which I think talked back to a lot of, I don't know if these weren't, I wasn't paying attention to who was writing them, but the assumption of many that if the lead character of the show is a Trump supporter, then the show must be taking a pro-Trump vantage point. And and basically he pulled the rug right out from under that, saying if, if you're watching the show and you think that's what it's saying, then you misunderstand. And, and granted, of course, for the media studies in the audience, um, many different interpretations are always possible. But, but I think that is very much the case, that the show is, is does not, and even the earlier version, did not necessarily align itself with Roseanne's view. Just because she is the title character doesn't mean that she is set up as the center for identification. Um, but I think instead what you have is a show that's presenting a variety of characters who are looking and debating mm-hmm. contemporary issues in a way that's somewhat different from the way that, say, the talking heads debate them on the news channels or perhaps uh, the, the various posters on your social media feed might be discussing them as well. I, I think back to, like, the Carmichael show, which just ended its three-year run. That was an excellent political topic-based comedy that, that's doing a lot of what Roseanne is doing just with a different perspective because the family is African-American on The Carmichael Show and the family on Roseanne is white. I mean, I think a lot of what I like about Roseanne comes from Laurie Metcalf and the work she's doing on that show. Now, granted, I am a fan of Tony Award winner Laurie Metcalf, but I feel like her role on the show is definitely a good counter to what Roseanne Barr is do- and Roseanne Connor are doing. But to the point, given the podcast as the business story here, um, it's certainly big news that the show has, as a reboot, has come back as big as it has. Even if it holds half of its premiere number, I think it premiered to around a 5, if I'm remembering correctly, in the 1849 demo. If it drops to even like a 2-5, that's a huge win for ABC. That's about twice what the middle was doing in that same time slot. Oh, also business story, Roseanne's Halo Effect. Um, jumping, you know, giving a huge lead into Blackish, and then the middle posted a three or four year high. Blackish had it, it after when it aired directly after Roseanne had its highest numbers since it's right around the beginning of its first season. Who knew there were still halo effects to be had in, in this nonlinear era? I feel like I saw the mass scheduler tweet something about um, how scheduling still matters. <laughs> well, what I think to tie this all together, I mean, what I think is great about this point of, of, of Roseanne and the conversation that we've been having uh, about YouTube and, and social media entertainment is that this is an environment where all of these things coexist. And I think too often our frames pit these things in competition and assume that it's one or the other and one's trying to kill the other, one will win. But actually, we what we see right now is a really robust marketplace, um, at least in terms of strategies. And I think for people with interesting questions, um, it has to do with in what ways can the variety of, of business models and content types you know, continue to coexist in a way that, that creates a, a vibrant media space. 
And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered to your feed as soon as they're available, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. David Craig, where can we find you on Twitter? Producing to the letter, or the number two, power. Producing to power on Twitter. Amanda Lotz. At Dr. TV Lotz. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon.